What does it look like to be bold for Christ? What does that, what does that look like? Does it look like this? Check out this pic right here. There was a time when I thought of it in this way. I thought of being bold for Christ was being like this guy right here. It meant being a religious nut. It meant being someone who stood out in the street on street corners, holding up signs and shouting at cars with a bullhorn. After coming to Christ, I thought of being bold for Christ as something like this. Look at this next pick here. Thought of the early Christian martyrs, those who laid their life down for the cause of Christ. I thought of those who are serving God on the other side of the world in, in hostile areas and only those who were putting their life on the line for Christ. I thought of men like John Bunyan who was arrested for his faith and Jim Elliot who laid his life down for Christ. And though those men were obviously bold, what I've learned as I've matured in my faith and have grown in my understanding of the Christian faith, I have learned that boldness, get this, is a quality that all believers should possess. Do you know that? I've learned that, that being bold for Christ is something that all believers can and should be everywhere. Being bold for Christ simply means being faithful to do what God has called you to do no matter what. No matter where you are in the world, no matter where you are in life, regardless of your circumstances, we are called believers to be bold for God. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 3. We are continuing our series through the book of Acts, titled To the Ends of the Earth. We're going to finish up Acts 3 this morning. And as you're turning there, let me bring you up to speed with where we are. You remember last week, we left Peter and John in the courtyard of the temple, surrounded by this large group of Jews who wanted to hear from them. And do you remember why they were gathered around them and why they wanted to hear from them? Well, you remember as Peter and John are on their way into the temple to pray, they went there three times a day to pray, they're stopped by a lame beggar outside the temple by the beautiful gate. And he asked them for money. And Peter says, don't have silver or gold, but what we do have, we give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. Luke tells us that at that very moment, this man gets strength for the first time in his ankles and feet. And he takes Peter by the hand and he jumps up and he goes into the temple walking and leaping and praising God. Well, those in the temple knew this beggar well. They probably passed him every day, three times a day for years, and were told that on that day when they see him completely healed, the prayer service is over. 
They are filled with wonder and amazement, wondering what has happened to this man. So they go out of the temple and they find Peter and John in the courtyard of the temple known in a place known as Solomon's portico or Solomon's porch. And they gather around them and standing with Peter and John is this man who has been healed and he's clinging to them. And at that moment, we're told, Peter begins to preach. What is the message that he preaches? Well, it's a similar message to the one he preached in Acts chapter 2. Remember there, the setting is, is similar, isn't it? They're in a home in Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit comes on the 120 faithful followers of Christ. And then filled with the Holy Spirit, we're told, they proclaim the mighty works of God in different languages. And you remember, crowd of Jews from all over the known world were in Jerusalem at this time for Pentecost. And they hear this commotion caused by the Holy Spirit. And they come to this house and they gather in this house and they see this great work of God. And they're amazed that all of these Galileans are proclaiming the mighty works of God in all these different languages, and they're amazed that they're hearing these works of God proclaimed in their own native languages. We're told that they inquire about this miraculous work, and though Peter addresses this work of the Holy Spirit, the main message of his sermon is Christ. He boldly preaches Christ there. He preaches his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension and his exaltation. He preaches Christ. And here in Acts 3, they're here gathered around Peter and John again in this courtyard of the temple, inquiring about this miracle, and Peter once again preaches Christ. What I want to do this morning is I want to study Peter's sermon And as we look at this text, I want to point out several things we learn from Peter about what it means to be bold for Christ. Notice point number one. We learn those who are bold for Christ direct people to Christ instead of drawing attention to themselves. That's key. To be bold for Christ, it's essential that we direct people to Christ instead of drawing attention to ourselves. Now think about the context here. We have Peter and John here with this man who's been crippled his whole life, who is now standing before them healed. They have this large crowd gathered around them and they could have said, hey, let's profit off of this. Let's see how much money we can make on this healing ministry. Could have said that, couldn't they? A lot of folks made money in ministry in that way. Peter could have said, hey, I've got all eyes on me as this great healer. I could use this for personal gain. But he doesn't do that, does he? Look at what he says, verse 12. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Peter says to the crowd, why are you surprised? And and why are you looking at us as though we healed this man? This man stands before you healed because of Jesus. Remember he said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. Now skip on down, look at Acts 3.16 for a moment. Look at what Peter says here. 
He says, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Peter says here that it is their faith in Jesus that has made this man strong. Now, whose faith? Well, we're not told specifically, but I think we get our answer from the text. This man was just wanting some money. It is Peter who is the one who says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. Then he takes this man up and the man's healed. It's Peter in John's faith in the Lord Jesus that heals this man. You see that? But he says, it's through Jesus that this man has been healed. Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. And back on up in verse 13, Peter says, this should not surprise you all that Jesus has done this work. I mean, let's think about it. This is nothing new for Jesus, is it? He had been performing these miracles in their midst, in and around Jerusalem and elsewhere for years. Many of them, probably some in the crowd, had been eyewitnesses to some of the miracles that Jesus performed. And Peter says that the same Jesus has healed this man through us. So notice Peter is being bold for Christ here. But notice something else. He's doing it in humility by directing people's focus away from himself and toward the Lord Jesus. You know, oftentimes when we think of boldness, we think of standing apart, standing out from the rest, don't we? I mean, think about it. When you're writing a letter and you put a word or a phrase in bold, what are you doing? You're causing that word or that phrase to stick out. When we say someone's making a bold fashion statement, what are we saying when we say that? We're saying... He or she is wearing something that's causing him or her to stick out, and that could be a good or a bad thing, right? So when we hear the word bold, we normally think of of someone or something that is set apart or stands out from the rest. But here's the paradox here. The paradox here is being bold for Christ involves humility. It's living in such a way that Christ sticks out. It's living in such a way where he is the central focus. Boy, Peter is definitely doing that here. But throughout Scripture, I don't think we have a better example of this than John the Baptist. I don't think there was anyone more daring and bold, yet humble and lowly than him. You remember his role in ministry is described as just the the way, the one preparing the way for the Lord. In Luke 3, he says... He who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. When explaining his ministry in John 3, John says, He, Jesus, must increase, I must decrease. There's not a better example for us of what it looks like to be bold for Christ than him. So people who are bold for Christ are people who direct people to Christ rather than drawing attention to themselves. Listen to me, believers. If you're not involved in ministry, one, you need to be. That's the calling that God has placed on us all. We are all called to be ministers. If you have been called out, if you've been set apart by, by God, it's for a reason that he still has you here, and that's for ministry. And when you involve yourself in ministry, it should look like this. 
You should not be ministering in a way where the attention is on you. We are to be arrows pointing to him. Our ministry is to direct people to Christ, to bring people to him, to draw attention to him, to proclaim his name, proclaim his message. That's what we're called to do. Here's the second key for being bold for Christ. To be bold for Christ, one must also get this, speak the truth in love instead of altering the message for public approval. Speak the truth in love. Don't alter God's message for public approval. If you're going to be bold for Christ, you've got to speak the truth in love. Now, think about, once again, what's happening here in the courtyard of the temple. The crowd gathered around Peter and John because this man had been healed. And they wanted to talk to Peter and John about this miracle and quite possibly to see another one, right? They're like, let's go to these guys and let's see what's going to happen. But what does Peter do? Does Peter give them what they want? Does he tell them what they want to hear? Does he put on a show for them? No, we're told he talks about their sin. Talk about a way to clear out a crowd. That's it. Look at verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life. Notice they were coming to Peter to inquire about a miracle and Peter talks to them about their sin. He says, our God, he's speaking to a Jewish audience here, right? He says, our God sent us his son, his servant, Jesus. He delivered him to us and you delivered him over to be killed. God sent him to rescue and save us from sin and you rejected and crucified him with sinners. Though he was without sin, you condemned him to die with sinners and you allowed a murderer, Barabbas, to go free. He says, you took the life of the author of life. Wow. What a message. What boldness. I mean, think about it. Peter and John are surrounded by zealous Jews. They have nowhere to go. He's not shouting down this message from a chopper with a bullhorn, is he? He's standing boldly in the midst of hundreds of zealous Jews saying, you killed your Messiah. Boy, God had changed Peter, hadn't he? He had gone from cowering in the shadows, trying to blend in around a charcoal fire while Christ is being led off to be crucified to this point where he is boldly professing Christ from the courtyard of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. What a change. And we also learn here, get this, this is so key. We learn a great and simple truth here we see all throughout Scripture. Being bold for Christ means giving people what they need, not what they want. Did you get that? The Jews didn't want this message at first. They didn't want to hear that. They didn't want to see a miracle. And, and besides the fact, many of them, they thought they were good with God. 
They thought as long as we're good Jews coming here to the temple every day, three times a day to pray, as long as we do these things, we'll be just fine. We're God's people. Peter says, you're the worst of sinners. You've crucified God's man. You've killed his Messiah. You're sinners in need of saving. This is the message, not that they wanted, but that they needed. And this is the message that all of us need, folks. But this is not a popular message, is it? We live in a day when it's not acceptable to talk about sin and judgment, even in Christian circles. But folks, we must talk about it. We must address it because God does. And the reason he does is because if we fail to see God as a righteous and wrathful God who is set against us because of our sin, we'll never see our need for and look for and trust in his Savior, the Lord Jesus, for salvation. I've heard people say before, I like the way he or she shares about Jesus. They do so in a very inoffensive way. You know what goes into my head when I hear that? Probably didn't share it correctly. Just being honest. Because the gospel shared correctly offends people. It does. It tells us that we have turned away from the God who made us. It tells us that we're dead in sin, set apart from enemies of God. That's not a popular message, folks. But if you leave that out, if you omit those truths, you've not shared the gospel. Now, I'm not saying you need to go out of your way to offend people. Don't intentionally set out to do that. Speak the truth in love, but get this, speak the truth. And when you do that, no matter how you sugarcoat it, if you speak the truth, you're going to offend people. Because the gospel that draws some repels many others. It does. But we must share the truth of the gospel and leave the results in God's hands. It's what Peter does. Well, Peter's not being seeker sensitive here, right? Peter would have laughed at that. And we're to be seeker-sensitive when we preach the gospel. He preached the truth, and we're to do it as well. He tells them very clearly, they've sinned against God. They've crucified God's man, his Messiah. He tells them, though you're here three times a day praying in God's temple, you are his enemy. But then notice how he transitions in verse 17. I love this. He says, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Notice after dropping the bricks of condemnation down on their heads, Peter offers up some gracious words, doesn't he? In verse 17, he says, Brothers, I know you did it in ignorance. You didn't know you were crucifying the Lord of glory. You didn't know what you were doing. And Jesus said this, did he not? Luke 23, he says, Father, forgive them for what? They know not what they do. They crucified the Lord of glory in ignorance. They didn't know what they were doing. But do you know who did know? God knew. God knew what they were doing. And he knew what he was doing in and through them. Their actions, though evil, God meant for good. This was all a part of the divine plan. Remember, Peter said this in Acts 2. 
He said in verse 23, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He's preaching a similar message here. He says, God told us this would happen by the mouths of his prophets. He told us Christ would would suffer, and through his suffering, God provides a way for us to be made right with him. He says, you may not have known that you were crucifying the Lord of glory, but God did. And it was through the suffering and death of his son that God opened up a way for sinners like you and me to be forgiven of sin and made right with God. Get this, God conquered sin and death and he worked in and through the hands of lawless men and he worked through the death of his son to bring light and life to the dark and dead world. And how can we grab hold of it? We know Christ has accomplished this great work. How can we grab hold of it? Verse 19 through repentance and faith. And this leads us right into our third principle here about being bold for Christ. First, we said that to be bold for Christ, you must direct people to Christ instead of drawing attention to yourself. Second, we said one must speak the truth in love instead of altering God's message for public approval. And the third and final key for being bold for Christ is this, number three, to be bold for Christ, one must call for people to return to Christ and be saved rather than allow them to remain unrepentant and in darkness. So we said in the previous point, Peter, after preaching to his Jewish audience about their sinfulness and their need of a Savior, he calls for a response in verse 19. Look at what he says. He says, repent, therefore, and turn back. He's calling for them to repent and return. Notice he says, repent therefore. Now what's the therefore, therefore? It's a connecting word, right? It's pointing back to all that Peter has just said. He's saying, you guys have crucified God's king. You've killed his Messiah. This man that God delivered to you, you delivered over to Pilate to be killed. You may not have known you were killing the Lord of glory, but you killed him. This man who was without sin, completely innocent, you condemned to die with sinners, and you let a murderer go free. You killed the author of life. You sinned against God in a major way. And Peter says here, because of these things you need to repent and return to God you've blown it he said therefore repent turn around turn back return to Christ remember when Christ first entered into Jerusalem before his crucifixion on a donkey we're getting ready to uh, remember Palm Sunday it's coming up hard to believe isn't it but that's what we remember on that day Christ entering into Jerusalem in humility, and we're told that people are coming out in the streets with palm branches shouting Hosanna, which means save now. And then a few days later, they're back out in the streets, but they're shouting something completely opposite, right? They're shouting, crucify him. Well, Peter here is calling for them to return to their first conclusion that they made about Jesus. He's saying, though you did reject him, turn from that and receive him now as your Lord and Savior. Turn around, return to Jesus. 
folks, to be bold for Christ, this has to be our message. We must not shy away from it. We must speak the truth in love instead of altering the message for public approval. And our message must be this. Repent. Turn from your sin. Return to Christ. Trust in and follow him. And get this, when one does that, when they repent, when they return to Christ, notice what happens as a result. Peter tells us in verses 19 through 26 of Acts 3. First, he tells us God's forgiveness is granted. Look at verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. When we repent and we return, we are forgiven of sin. Our sins are blotted out. As we talked about in the previous verses, the sins of the people here were great, weren't they? They were great enemies of God, set against Him because of their sin. They had taken the one whom God had sent, and they sent Him to the cross. They sent Him to die, and I'm sure the guilt of many... Hearing Peter's words were great. They were probably like those in Acts 2. What are we to do? They knew about their sin now. It was great. But notice here, Peter, he goes from guilt to grace in a matter of moments. Peter says, because your sin is great, repent. Turn from your sin. Turn back to Christ. Come to him. Trust in him alone for your salvation that your sins may be blotted out, wiped away, forgiven, eliminated forever. How can that happen? How is that possible? How can our sin be removed if it's so great? God tells us this all throughout his word, folks. He tells us through his son. Through his son, this is made possible through Christ. You see, God sent Christ to us. And Christ came willingly and lived the perfect life we can never live. And when he went to the cross, get this, he took on our sin and he took the punishment that we deserve for our sin. And he offered up, in exchange for that, his righteousness. He took on our sin and offered up his righteousness and made that available to all who repent and turn back to him. So when we repent, when we trust in Christ alone for salvation, he wipes away our sin, he removes our sin. The reason he can do that is because that sin has been applied to Christ and Christ paid the penalty For that sin at the cross, in an exchange, God applies Christ's righteousness to us, to all of those who trust in him alone for salvation. This is called the great exchange, and it's truly great, isn't it? Our sin for his righteousness. Colossians 2, 13 through 14, listen to this, Paul says this. You have these in your spiritual growth guide, by the way says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Our sin has been nailed to the cross. He became sin who knew no sin, and he was nailed to the cross. Our sin there with him. 
So that if we trust in him alone for salvation, we can receive his righteousness and be forgiven. That's the great work that Christ has done for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, God made Christ to be to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the great exchange, folks. Our sin for Christ's righteousness. So that's the first thing that results from repentance and faith. When we repent, when we turn from our sin, when we trust in Christ alone for salvation, God's forgiveness is granted. Secondly, God's kingdom is experienced. When we repent and return to Christ, God's kingdom is experienced. Look at verses 20 and 21. These are great verses. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Get this, when one turns from their sin and places their faith in Christ alone for salvation, they along with the rest of God's people are promised a glorious future in the presence of Christ for all eternity. Peter tells us here, times of refreshing are coming for those in Christ. Don't you love how that's put? Times of refreshing. Doesn't that just sound wonderful? We need it. He says God is going to send Christ and he is going to make right all that we have wronged by our sin. He's going to make things the way they were meant to be. He's going to make right all that we have have wronged in this world and messed up by our sin. He is going to restore his broken and fallen world and he is going to restore his broken and fallen people. And who are his people? Back again to verse 19. Those who have repented and those who have turned to Christ. They are the ones who are going to get to experience this time of refreshing when God's kingdom comes in its fullness so the first result of those who repent and turn to christ is god's forgiveness is granted second god's kingdom is experienced third when we repent of our sin and we return to christ god's judgment is avoided god's judgment is avoided look at verses 22 and 23 peter says moses said now get this he he's got their attention right there right Moses was their man. And Peter's quoting Moses to point to Jesus. He says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from our brothers, from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Peter here is calling for the Jewish audience to listen to their prophet Moses. And he quotes Moses from Deuteronomy 18, where he speaks of God's coming Messiah. And he says, everyone, Moses said this, who does not look to him and believe in him and trust in him and follow him will be destroyed. So Peter is telling the Jews of his day, listen, you better listen to your guy, Moses. And you better listen to the one he said was going to come 
You better listen to him. And that's Jesus. He says, repent, turn to Christ, listen to Moses, follow his words, return to Christ so that you can escape God's judgment. So we learn here, God's forgiveness is granted, right? His kingdom is experienced. His judgment is avoided. And lastly, last two points. When one turns from their sin and places their faith and trust in Christ alone for salvation, God's blessing is felt and his restoration is achieved. Those are the last two points. God's blessing is felt and God's restoration is achieved. Look at verses 24 through 26. Peter says, and all the prophets who have spoken, first he was talking about Moses, right? Then he says, all the prophets have spoken from Samuel, that's a big name, That's an important guy there for them. And those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, there's another name. Notice he said Moses, he said all the prophets, he said Samuel, he said Abraham. All of these pointed to Jesus. He's got their attention. He says to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Y'all remember this past fall when we were in the minor prophets section of scripture? And we said that each one of those books, in most every one of those books, there is a promise of God's coming judgment, but there is also a promise of a future restoration. God also promised to their patriarchs, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, that through all of them, all peoples of the earth will be blessed. He told Abraham, he said, you are, through you is going to come this great nation. And through this nation, all nations will be blessed. And here, Peter is telling his Jewish audience that all of these Old Testament promises of a future blessing and a restoration, all of these things, get this, they've been made possible in Christ. And then he tells them, God has sent him to you first. The Jews were favored, weren't they? They had all the words of their prophets. They had Abraham and and they had the, the patriarchs, Isaac and Jacob. Later, they had Moses, they had Joshua, they had Samuel, they had King David, they had King Solomon, they had Isaiah, they had Jeremiah, they had all these people. And then, he sends Christ to them first. He's showing the great favor, the great mercy and grace that has been shown there. And then, what do they do? They crucified Christ, and then... Peter comes back to them. God sends him right back to the temple to preach Christ to them so that they can repent and believe. He says, God has sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Again, notice Peter's message here. It goes from guilt to grace. Though he begins this message with their sin and how they crucified God's Messiah, he ends this message with a wonderful word of grace. He tells them, though you crucified God's man, God's Messiah, through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, God has accomplished this great work that he promised he would accomplish long ago through the words of our prophets. And Peter says, we can experience this blessing 
that he promised would come through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And we can experience this great restoration that he promised to our people through prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and Joel and Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi by turning from our sins and by returning to Christ and by making him our Lord. And folks, the same message is offered up to you today. It is. If you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, I urge you, make this decision today so that you, like those in Peter's day, can share in this blessing and experience this coming restoration. I urge you today, if you have not, turn from your sin. Trust in Christ alone. Make him your Lord today so that you can be forgiven of sin and restored to God, and escape his judgment, and get to share in his blessing that he has made available through the person and work of his son, Jesus. If you've never made this decision, I pray you would before you leave here today. Would you pray with me?